Kyle Rittenhouse is now a free man. The lead starts right now. Tensions high across the country after Kyle Rittenhouse, who was facing life in prison, was found not guilty on all charges. But his legal fights may not be over. Also breaking, you get a booster, and you get a booster, and you get a booster. The CDC goes full Oprah, recommending the extra jab for every adult. Dr. Sanjay Gupta is here with what it means for you. Plus, she is the tennis star who vanished after accusing a former communist leader of sexual assault. Today, China claims to show proof that she's okay. Welcome to The Lead. I'm Pamela Brown in for Jake Tapper. And we begin with breaking news in our national lead. The jury finding Kyle Rittenhouse not guilty on all charges. Rittenhouse wept and hugged his attorney as the verdicts were read. The 18-year-old faced charges of reckless homicide and reckless endangerment in the shootings of three people, two of whom died during last year's Black Lives Matter protest in Kenosha, Wisconsin. A short time ago, President Biden reacted to the verdict. I stand by what the jury has concluded. The jury system works and we have to abide by it. And he isn't the only one reacting. CNN's Sarah Seidner starts us off from Kenosha, Wisconsin. Rittenhouse. Not guilty. Kyle Rittenhouse, now a free man. Not guilty. Overcome as the jury acquitted him on all five counts in his homicide trial. Is there anyone who does not agree with the verdict as read? Defense attorney Mark Richards saying the wait for a verdict had been torture, but his client is relieved. He wants to get on with his life. Um, he has a huge sense of relief for what the jury did to him today. Um, he wishes none of this would have ever happened. But as he said when he testified, he did not start this. The prosecutor responding, while we are disappointed with the verdict, it must be respected. The family of one of the victims, Anthony Huber, saying we are heartbroken and angry. They all have blood on their hands for the mishandling of that whole entire night. The governor has called for calm as a small crowd in Kenosha continues to react to the news. The unanimous decision did not come swiftly. Weighing a life sentence for 18-year-old Rittenhouse, the jury deliberated for almost four full days before delivering the verdict. All right, members of the jury, it is uh, for you uh, to determine whether the defendant is guilty or not guilty of each of the offenses. The jury ultimately had to answer one question. Did Rittenhouse kill two men and maim another as a form of vigilante justice or self-defense? The defense seized on the testimony of Gage Grosskreutz. Video shows Rittenhouse shot and destroyed Grosskreutz's right bicep in the melee. Still, the survivor gave perhaps the most compelling argument that Rittenhouse was acting in self-defense. When you were standing three to five feet from him with your arms up in the air, he never fired, right? Correct. It wasn't until you pointed your gun at him, advanced on him with your gun, now your hands down, pointed at him, that he fired, right? Correct. 
We are now getting a statement from the Grosskreutz's attorney uh, about this case and how they feel about this case. And they said that uh, Kim Motley, who was his attorney, says that she grieved for the families of those slain by Kyle Rittenhouse, uh, that no one deserved to die that night or be injured. And she called Gage Grosskreutz and Anthony Huber, both who were uh, after running after Kyle Rittenhouse, called them uh, heroes, that they acted heroically in this. But she asked... Uh, that everyone remain nonviolent in their protests, and she felt that justice had not been done today. Pam? And Sarah, we have seen a small crowd outside the courthouse all afternoon. What's the scene like now? You know, it's gotten very quiet. In fact, it is more quiet now than it has been throughout this entire two and a half week trial. Uh, We know that there are folks that are gathering outside the Boys and Girls Club to protest, but uh, things have become more calm now than they have been throughout this entire uh, trial. I will mention this, that there has been really no major violence at all uh, during this case. There has just been a lot of protesting, chanting, and yelling, but there has really been calm outside of this court for the most part, Pam. Yeah, let's hope it stays that way, Sarah Seidner. Thank you. And let's bring in our legal experts now. Sarah Azari, I'm going to start with you. Why do you think the prosecution wasn't able to prove its case? Good to be with you, Pamela. Yeah, the prosecution was not able to prove its case beyond a reasonable doubt, which is really the highest standard in our uh, criminal judicial in our judicial system, um, because the the prosecution was number one not able to poke the holes in in Kyle Rittenhouse's testimony, and that's really what the defense turned on, and also they weren't able to show that his response to each of these men to each of these sets of threats was unreasonable. In other words, when the jury came back a couple days ago and watched the videos, I think half a dozen videos frame by frame, they were looking to see whether Kyle did something to provoke the threat and whether his response to that threat was reasonable in terms of using deadly force. And they agreed with the defense that it was. In other words, the evidence was very clear that each time Kyle Rittenhouse shot at each of these men that he was facing imminent danger of great bodily harm or death and that he had not provoked uh, that threat. So I think this is absolutely the just result. Um, you know, I've been doing this for almost 20 years, doing trial, criminal trials, and not based on politics and emotions, but just based on the law and the facts, this was 100 uh, percent warranted, Pam. Charles Coleman, do you agree? I mean, you're a former state prosecutor. Well, I wouldn't say that it was a just result, but I would agree with Sarah in as much as if you watch the trial from beginning to end and you saw how things unfolded, it's very difficult to disagree with the actual verdict that the jurors came to. I think that there are a lot of emotions and there's the, the reaction to the verdict represents a huge divide in terms of where we are. But in terms of the jury and the people who watched that trial unfold, there's very little argument that can be made. What this came down to is ultimately, did you believe the prosecution's narrative around provocation in as much as Rittenhouse was the one who started it and should not be able to claim self-defense and that his actions were not reasonable? Or do you believe the narrative that the defense put forward, which was essentially Kyle Rittenhouse was there to help and his intention was honorable up and until he felt like his life was threatened by a situation that he was in and he had no other recourse 
but to actually pull the trigger in defense of his own life. Ultimately, what it appears is that the jury decided that they believe the, the self-defense narrative much more than they believe the provocation, and that's why Kyle Rittenhouse right now is a free man, despite how, however many may feel about it. And Sarah Rittenhouse testified in his own defense, which was considered something of a surprise. How important did that turn out to be? It was the entire case, Pamela. You know, we rarely put our clients on the stand um, because, like, for instance, looking at the Arbery trial, uh, we saw what happened with McMichaels. It's very dangerous. But with a defense of self-defense, you almost always have to let the client tell the story. They're the ones who can best say they were in fear for their life, why they used the force that they used, what exactly happened that led up to uh, the shooting or the killing, whatever the, the issue is. So it is it is almost always necessary. And I think that in this case, it was the entire defense. And to Charles's point, you know, it was it was very interesting that this jury um, viewed provocation uh, very narrowly. You know, in other words, it wasn't enough that this 17-year-old kid came to Kenosha with a gun strapped to him and bad intentions. They were looking for specific acts by him that, that then brought about the threat that he responded to. So again, I think this was, um, Kyle's testimony was necessary. It is what the entire defense turned on. I'm wondering, Charles, you point out his age, you know, um, Sarah, 17-year-old, now 18. Do you think his age played any, any role in the verdict, the fact that he was so young? Well, Pamela, I don't necessarily think that it's just his age. I think we have to be very clear about what that means. I think that what we have seen throughout the course of this trial, be it from the judge, be it from right-wing media, be it from the public in many cases, we've seen a consistent infantilization of Kyle Rittenhouse in front of the public. And I think part of that was strategic by the defense, the way that he presented on the stand, the way that he presented in court, to remind the jury that he was young. But in terms of his age, I want to be very clear about something we've seen Many instances where people who were not like Kyle Rittenhouse, and I am referring to race in this instance, took the stand. I'm referring to the exonerated five in New York, also known as the Central Park Five, where they were not treated with the same delicacy and shielded by their age. And so there is a certain level of privilege that we have to acknowledge when you talk about how age played a role. I do believe that age was a factor. However, I think that it was amplified by the fact that he enjoyed the privilege of being infantilized. And I think that that also may have resonated with the jury as well. Charles uh, Coleman, Sarah Azari, out of time, but thank you so much for that discussion. And breaking this afternoon, the CDC just one step away from allowing every adult to get a booster shot. We're going to discuss with Dr. Sanjay Gupta up next. Plus, former President Trump irritated by a Republican governor, not for his policies, but for his growing popularity. New CNN reporting ahead. Breaking news in our health lead moments ago, a key CDC panel voting to recommend COVID booster shots for all adults. The boosters would be doses of either the Pfizer or Moderna vaccine. And now the final decision rests in the hands of CDC director Dr. Rochelle Walensky. I want to bring in CNN chief medical correspondent Dr. Sanjay Gupta. Great to see you as always, Sanjay. So okay, assuming Dr. Walensky signs off on that recommendation, as, as we expect, how soon could all adults be eligible to get their shots? Um, r- right away. Uh, that, that's the thing. You know, when we at the beginning of this vaccine rollout, there was often supply issues. There's uh, enough supply in most places. So people who qualify, which is we'll see what Dr. Walensky says, but really should be all adults. 
uh, they should be able to get the boosters right away. It is six months after you finished your second shot. And, you know, people always ask, what if I'm three months or four months out? There is benefit to waiting six months because they think that the, the, uh, you want some time between your prime shots, those first two shots, and the boost shot. That should give you longer durability. That's what they found. But this was um, data that's uh, been out there for some time. Let me just show you quickly, Pamela, what drove this decision today. If you looked at vaccinated and unvaccinated, for most of the time what we've been seeing, if people were to get sick, they were far more likely to be unvaccinated. That's the red line. The green line is the vaccinated people that ended up in the hospital, small. But that was till the end of August. Um, question has been what happened after that? And that's where they started to look at some of the data out of Israel. And what they found was a really important story here. If you look at this, who are the people in the hospital with COVID? Again, predominantly unvaccinated. But look at what uh, else you saw there. About 9.6 out of 100,000 were people who had been vaccinated with two shots. But if those people got boosted, it dropped the number down significantly to 1.8 per 100,000. So that graph there, Pamela, that tells a story. Mm -hmm. Problem is still primarily unvaccinated, but you can see why boosters would make a difference based on that, on that graph. And so how long then after you get a booster shot do you receive the protection from it, the full protection? Usually a couple of weeks, uh, kind of like even after the second shot. So, okay. you know, it's, uh, it takes a couple of weeks for your body to sort of respond and make those antibodies. All right. Well, the United States uh, is now reporting 94,943 new coronavirus cases per day, the highest seven-day average since early October. What do you think about that? I mean, when you look at this chart, what do you blame for it? Could it be the beginning of a winter surge? Yeah, I, I, I think so. I mean, that, that's the concern. I don't, you know, hopefully it's not going to be a surge like we've seen in the past. But I think with the cooler and drier weather, uh, we know that the virus has spread more easily. People are more likely to be indoors, spreads more easily. We do still have a significant percentage of the country that's unvaccinated, and this is a really contagious virus. And then on top of all of that, you add this component of the fact that uh, there seems to be some, some waning of the protection uh, of, the, of the vaccines as well. So that's, I think, what probably will drive the, the surge. Now, we don't know how, much, how many people out there have immunity. We know that there's um, you know, about 60% of the country that's been vaccinated. Uh, there's a lot of people who had COVID as well, and they're going to have some infection-acquired immunity for a while. It's harder to know what that number is. So that may sort of stem the surge a little bit. But quickly, Pamela, you know, the problem always is that what is this going to do to the hospitals? You know, if you start to see significant numbers, if you get to a situation, for example, ICUs, if they become 75% full, um, that could potentially lead to, down the road, 12,000 excess deaths over the next couple of weeks. They get to 100% full, 80,000 excess deaths. Those aren't necessarily COVID deaths, Pamela. Those are people who, you know, are, are not able to as easily get care because the hospitals are so full, heart attacks, strokes, car accidents, gunshot wounds, things like that. So hospitals go on diversion, and that makes it just difficult for society overall, which is why stemming this surge is so important. That's really alarming to look at that, and it just shows you the ripple effect, right, of um, what happens yeah. if you get COVID and you end up in the hospital, and primarily, predominantly, those are unvaccinated people, as you pointed out. I do want to ask you about uh, something that happened today, President Biden getting his first physical of his presidency. Mm. Uh, you were in the White House briefing room after former President Trump's physical in 2018, where you questioned then White House physician Dr. Ronnie Jackson over Trump's results. So what are you looking for in President Biden's physical results? 
Well, he, he is, um, you know, he's 79 years old tomorrow. We know uh, we have some idea of his past medical history, and we're going to look for specifics about, uh, you know, his overall health, but also addressing some of these things in his, in his history overall. I can show you some of those things quickly. He has a history of atrial fibrillation. Uh, that's a irregular heartbeat. He takes a medication for high cholesterol. The biggest thing in the late 80s, Pamela, he had brain surgery. For, uh, for cerebral aneurysms. And um, he's been monitored for that since then. Uh, shouldn't, shouldn't expect anything new there, but want to hear if there's any updates. Those are the big things. And obviously, as you know, he had his colonoscopy today. Uh, he had, a, I think, a, a, you know, want to see if there's any results from that, any concerns uh, based on that. So th- those are the big things, but they will hopefully provide a briefing, tell us about all the lab results and imaging tests that they've gotten, and uh, we'll see what, uh, what they all show. All right, Dr. Sanjay Gupta, thanks so much. Yeah, thank you. Well, a massive step forward of Biden's legislative agenda as it passes the U.S. House. But up next, why it could take a step backward in the Senate. And our politics lead, a giant yet partial win for the Biden administration. Today, House Democrats passed the president's sweeping $1.9 trillion economic and climate agenda after months of negotiations. And this bill? Money for child care, paid family leave, universal pre-K, electricity tax credits, home health care, Obamacare subsidies, and more. But as CNN's Arlette Signs reports, some of those items may not survive the Senate, leaving Majority Leader Chuck Schumer once again in the middle of two key senators Bernie Sanders and Joe Manchin. A major breakthrough for President Biden's agenda after months of negotiations. The yeas are 220, the nays are 213. The Build Back Better bill is passed. The House passing the president's $1.9 trillion social safety spending package with a vote along party lines. Only one Democrat, Jared Golden of Maine, voting no. This bill is monumental. It's historic. It's transformative. It's bigger than anything we've ever done. The president now one step closer to securing key campaign promises like universal pre-K, climate initiatives and health care subsidies. Republicans blasting the bill as House Minority Leader Kevin McCarthy stalled the vote with an eight and a half hour speech overnight. This is the single most reckless and irresponsible spending bill in our nation's history. But the bill isn't a done deal yet, with a steep climb in the Senate, where holdouts like key moderate Senators Joe Manchin and Kirsten Sinema remain. The president uh, is absolutely committed, of course, to getting this through the Senate, signing it into law and ensuring these impacts, these cost-cutting measures uh, are uh, put in place into law as soon as possible. The bill is expected to undergo major changes in the Senate to get all 50 senators on board. Paid family leave, a top White House priority, likely on the chopping block. I will sign it, period. While the House moved his economic agenda forward, President Biden was at Walter Reed Medical Center for his first physical as commander-in-chief and a routine colonoscopy. While he was under anesthesia, the president transferred power to Vice President Kamala Harris, making her the first woman with presidential power for an hour and 25 minutes. Sir, what is the state of your health after this exam today? Good. I feel great. Nothing's changed. We're in great shape. And so, uh, you know, I'm looking forward to celebrating my 58th birthday. 
Now, the president was joking there. He is actually turning 79 years old tomorrow, and he will spend the weekend with his family up in Wilmington, Delaware, celebrating. And the White House says they will release a summary of his physical results at some point today. So we are still waiting to get that exactly. But this will be the first glimpse at what the president's health is like in two years. He last had a physical in 2019 when he was running for president. Pamela. Arlette Sines, thanks so much. Before next year's campaigning even begins, we're going to show you how some politicians are getting an advantage by redrawing some lines. Topping our politics lead, Republicans and Democrats alike are crafting their strategies for the 2022 midterms. But it's possible that Republicans could gain the House majority through partisan gerrymandering alone. As CNN's Tom Foreman reports, drawing a redistricting map is a fierce fight, and one party is landing more punches than the other. In the Wisconsin State Assembly, Republicans are fighting for their new election plan. Our proposal is a fair map. But it's already been vetoed by the Democratic governor, who is pushing his own plan. The gerrymandered maps Republicans passed a decade ago have enabled legislators to safely ignore the people who elected them. And these maps here, they're more of the same. And some minority groups are furious at both the GOP and the governor. These maps are illegal and a perversion of justice that cannot stand. Across the country, the fierce fight over drawing new election maps in the wake of the census favors Republicans who control more legislatures and governorships. And political analysts say the new maps alone could help them pick up the five seats they need to take back the majority in Congress. For example, explosive growth in principally the Latino population has given Texas two new congressional seats. But while Republican lawmakers say... The maps were drawn um, uh, blind to race. Their new maps have white voters in the majority in three times as many districts as Latinos. If we don't take pay attention to this and we don't demand that Latinos are represented, we will find ourselves with no representation. In Ohio, the Republican Party won almost 55% of the vote a year ago, but the new map could hand them 12 congressional seats, the Democrats three. The red wave is a coming at you like a freight train. North Carolina is about evenly split, but a new map would give Republicans such an edge, long-serving Congressman G.K. Butterfield will now not seek re-election in his once reliably blue district. It's racially gerrymandered. It will disadvantage African-American communities all across the 1st Congressional District. And in Georgia, where Democratic incumbents hold just six of 14 seats in the House of Representatives, the new map pits two of the Dems against each other. Democrats have certainly gerrymandered election maps over the years, and just having an advantage does not guarantee a victory. All that is granted, but there is so much unrest over what is happening right now Lawsuits are being launched all over the place, and the courts will almost certainly have the final say. Pam? All right, Tom Foreman, thanks so much for that report. Let's discuss with our panel, and I want to start with you, Alice. Tom Foreman just laid out there the situation in Ohio, and the Ohio uh, State Senate president told the Washington Post that Republicans did not consider race when they crafted this new map. Do you believe that? 
I do, because they're looking at the population and the growth of the population. And they were very specific. I talked with people that were involved in that process, just like in North Carolina. They look at where the population centers are growing and where the people are moving. They were very transparent in the process. They had public meetings. They showed maps to people across the state. And they made sure that there was public input throughout the process. And this is not about uh, race. It is not about partisan politics. This is more about following the population based on the recent census. They try and make an effort not to split up uh, cities and voting precincts. And they also try to make an effort to make sure that this is not done along partisan lines. And that is the that's I've been involved in the reapportionment process in the past. And that's the goal. And that's generally why they have public meetings to get input before the, the lines are drawn. How do you it's see just, it, Jamal? Yeah, it's just amazing that, that it just happens to turn out that black voters get disenfranchised in Ohio or Latino voters get disenfranchised in Texas. It's just amazing that this is the way it turns out. Um, so what we have here, not just in redistricting, because, of course, Democrats do it, too, in people gerrymander, but redistricting, the voting rights law changes in Texas and Georgia, it's like the Republicans are afraid of facing the voters. And so when you couple what's happening in Texas and in Georgia and the redistricting maps with what happened in Congress the other day with Gosar, where they were afraid to stand up against extremism, it's like the Republican Party is having this culture of cowardice that's starting to appear in their party, where they refuse to stand up and defend themselves, stand up for themselves, stand up against the former president, stand up against their base. They're just these cowardly lions that would love to have a spine. Just real quickly, not to play whataboutism, but we, we've talked about many states that are Republican-led. Let's look at the Illinois map run by Democrats in that state. There is a very strangely drawn uh, gerrymandered district in the state of Illinois. No one's talking about that. But, but the, the point is the focus needs to be on following the population and making sure that the, the, we're not splitting up cities and voting precincts. Again, it's not just redistricting. It's the entire Republican approach to voting, which is to keep voters from being able to have their say. It's cowardice. It's a culture of cowardice that we're seeing emerge in the, in the Republican Party. It's a problem. Okay, I want to go back to that with you, Alice. But first, I want to take a deeper dive into Ohio um, because I want to show the maps that we have here. Let's take a look here. Republicans won 55 percent of Ohio in the 2020 presidential race. Look at the current map on the left. It is mostly red, but there are some solid blue areas on the right, as you see uh, the proposed map. A lot more dark red. And those solidly blue areas, will they get carved up into much safer districts for Republicans. Experts say that map on the right gives Republicans a huge advantage, up to 12 of the 15 congressional seats. That is a huge imbalance, Sungman, between the presidential and congressional race, isn't it? Right. I mean, and look, to be to be fair, Ohio has definitely trended more red in previous presidential cycles. It is not as much of a swing state as it used to be, such as Pennsylvania, which is definitely a swing state in the last several elections. But you're right. You know, 12 seats out of the entire 15 and and, uh, you know, as little as three Democratic uh, Democratic held seats. That's not perhaps as matching as what the presidential votes would allow. But it is really fascinating just how redistricting not only just personal considerations or political considerations are driving uh, Democratic politicians' decision to retire this year. And I thought um, in North Carolina with G.K. Butterfield explicitly citing redistricting, his feeling that the the, the line drawing process was unfair, that he would not win in this uh, election. I think you may hear more of that in the coming weeks and months. You're seeing that with other politicians as well. You said they're not going to run again because of the redistricting that's happened. I want to switch gears here and talk a little bit about the Build Back Better. Today, the House, as we know, passed the president's bill back better bill. It heads to the Senate now. Is the White House, Tarini, is the White House anxious about 
what the Senate might do with it, carving it up. Because, of course, you have to bridge the gap between Bernie Sanders and Manchin. I think they've been anxious for a while. I mean, they've been trying to play this, uh, walk this sort of delicate balance between what the progressives want and what the moderates want. And I think um, what the House did today is obviously, um, you know, a big achievement for the White House in proving that they can get both sides to agree on something. But I think um, some of these pieces um, like paid family leave that are in this House proposal that now go to the Senate, um, things like that, uh, that we know some centrists don't want in the package, those things will be debated now. And I think, um, you know, the president has made clear he basically wants this passed and signed into law. So he was asked today if he uh, still wants paid family leave in the bill. And he said he would sign it. He he wants to move on. He wants his agenda done. Um, and so I think the timing of this package, what um, considerations like uh, rising inflation uh, due to the thinking of people like uh, Kristen Sinema and Joe Manchin, um, those are all factors that the White House is going to have to work through now. And I know you profiled, so I mean, you profiled the Senator Sinema. Um, how does she view this political moment? So right now, um, what I thought was telling about her perspective on the current uh, Build Back Better debate is that when we asked her about the imminent passage of the ho- in the House of, of that part of the plan, she said, well, let's keep in mind that that's actually not the initial framework that President Biden himself had put out. And she's correct. The House had made some revisions, added paid leave back in, um, had, and changed some uh, provisions on the revenue side. So, so to us, that's a signal that, yes, it is going to have to go through some changes once it hit the Senate. But going back to uh, what Tarini was talking about. I think the White House, both President Biden and his senior aides have made it clear that they just want to sign something. And Jensaki was asked earlier today, you know, where are his red lines when it comes to this package in the Senate? And her immediate response was that uh, President Biden is willing to compromise. He does not believe compromise is a dirty word. So you see how much, how willing he is to scale back his own ambitions, his party's ambitions to get something signed into law. And we already have seen him scale back the price tax. Even the speaker, Excuse me. Even the speaker said that today. She said that most of this deal has already been talked to the House, the Senate. And there's a few things they disagree with. Those things will get, you know, negotiated and figured out over time. I think the House did what's a smart thing to do. You pass the bill that you want as the politicians, send it to the Senate, let them do whatever they want to do. There's no reason for the members of the House to be the hatchet men and women for cinema and mansion. Let cinema and mansion gut the bill however they want. And Pelosi says there are 90 percent, everyone's on the same page with 90 percent of that. That's not true. I read your piece today, and as cinema said, a lot of this is not the framework that they have all agreed to. And while Pelosi uh, had all of uh, the Democrats in line on this, it's it's an important first step. It's not going to, no version of this is going to pass in the Senate because you have Cinema and you have Manchin who have said on the record many times, this is too much spending in the middle of an inflation and the, this country simply cannot afford it. And, and they've been on record many times saying they're not going to support these proposals. Okay, thank you so much to you all. And Alice, Jamal, I'm going to have to have you guys back to talk about it. <laughs> we didn't have time to circle back to that but next time. Chinese state media says these photos prove that missing tennis player is okay. Are they legit? That's next. In our worldly, China tried to show proof today that missing tennis superstar Peng Shuai is alive and well, posting three photos of Peng, which they claim are from her social media profile alongside the caption, Happy Weekend. China came under immense pressure from International Tennis Association legends like Serena Williams and even the UN after Peng vanished following a social media post accusing a powerful Chinese official of sexual assault. 
CNN's Will Ripley joins us live. Will, is there any way to know if these new photos are legit? There really isn't, Pamela, and this is all raising a lot of questions. In many ways, it's making people more concerned about the safety and the whereabouts of Peng Shui because you have these photos with no timestamp. We don't know who's taking one of the photos. She's there in front of you know, her stuffed animals and what appears to be her house by herself with a, with a caption that says, Happy Weekend, despite the fact that there is a global firestorm over her Weibo post accusing a former Chinese premier of forcing her to have sex three years ago at his house, which was deleted in 30 minutes. She's been erased from Chinese social media. Her media profiles, you can't find them if you search for them in China. And yet she says, happy weekend. And then she sends an email to the Women's Tennis Association saying, everything's fine. I'm great. I'm resting at home. Don't worry about me. It reeks of somebody who's being held against their will and not being able to communicate and express her views, Pamela. And what are the financial implications of the WTA potentially pulling out of China? It's massive. They have their regional headquarters in Beijing. They have a 10-year, highly lucrative deal reportedly worth a billion dollars. The WTA is taking a huge financial risk by demanding that China give them answers or saying they're going to pull their business out. And it's a step, frankly, that other sporting organizations that do business in China have never been willing to take before. And the Winter Olympics, of course, are just a couple of months away in Beijing. How big of a PR issue is this for China? It is a huge PR issue. The fact that we are uh, heading into the Beijing Winter Olympics and you have this really cloud of controversy that is enveloping the games over the treatment of women. We know that China's Mostly male, mostly older male leaders have suppressed the Me Too movement in that country for decades. But Peng Shui, by the timing of this post, by creating this discussion right now, this puts a tremendous amount of pressure on the Olympics. And the International Olympic Committee, kind of the opposite of the Women's Tennis Association in terms of their response. I'm going to read you just a portion of the statement that the IOC put out saying, quote, experience shows that quiet diplomacy offers the best opportunity to find a solution. Hmm. Quiet diplomacy means not standing up to China, not speaking out, which is what most organizations that are so hungry for the massive Chinese market and the billions of dollars there, trillions of dollars that are available, they're not speaking out. But this is different. And will this lead to change? That is the big question, Pamela. But of course, the most pressing question, where is Peng Shui? Is she okay? Will Ripley in Taipei, thank you. And coming up, we end the week with a White House tradition that's all gravy. Power vested in me as President of the United States, I pardon you. Drumsticks, please. It's peanut butter jelly time. And two lucky turkeys by those names have officially been pardoned by the President of the United States. With a gravy train of jokes to boot. <laughs> Instead of getting basted, these two turkeys are getting boosted. <laughs> Turkey is infrastructure. Peanut butter and jelly are going to help build back the butterball as we move along. <laughs> Sources say the turkeys were afraid they'd be gobbled up when they heard they'd be retiring at Purdue University. But there will be no coop because there is no connection between the university and the Purdue Poultry Processing Company, in case you were wondering. And in our out-of-this-world lead, there could be someone else out there. Well, NASA is about to launch a new telescope that it hopes will answer questions about life on other planets. As our Kristen Fisher reports, the new CNN film, The Hunt for Planet B, takes a look at this historic mission. 
The Hubble Space Telescope has been beaming back images, transforming our understanding of the universe for more than 30 years. Now, its successor, a telescope 100 times more powerful, is just weeks away from launch. The James Webb Space Telescope is designed to answer humanity's most existential questions. Are we alone in the universe? And where did that first light in the cosmos come from? I think its greatest discoveries are going to be answers to questions that we have yet to ask or imagine. Webb's deputy project manager, Paul Geithner, was hired by NASA 30 years ago to help fix Hubble. It was the mechanical version of eye surgery. Endeavor's 11-day fix-it mission in space was to install corrective mirrors so the nearsighted and nearly $2 billion Hubble Space Telescope can do what it's supposed to do, see. But once in space, Webb can't be repaired by astronauts. It will be too far away, orbiting the sun at a distance four times further away from Earth than the moon. The telescope is also so big, about the size of a tennis court, that it can't fit on top of a rocket fully intact. We had to design it so it could be folded up and then unfold in space. So it's the Origami Observatory. With more than 300 single points of failure, and each one could prove to be fatal to the mission's success. We wouldn't have built a telescope this big unless we needed to, and you need to build a telescope this big if you want to look the very dimmest, most earliest galaxies in the universe. Webb will be launching on a European rocket from French Guiana, a nod to the telescope's international partners, Europe and Canada. But just getting to this launch pad has cost nearly $9 billion more than initially projected, and it's about a decade overdue. Was there ever a moment where you thought, man, I, I just don't know if this is going to happen? There were numerous existential crises, both technical and programmatic through the life of the mission, but I guess we're all eternal optimists, uh, and we persevered and, and made it happen. Kristen Fisher, CNN, Washington. The CNN film, The Hunt for Planet B, premieres tomorrow at 9 p.m. only on CNN. And on Sunday, be sure to tune in to State of the Union. Among the guests, Dr. Anthony Fauci, Virginia's next Lieutenant Governor Winsome Sears, New Hampshire, New Hampshire Governor Chris Sununu, and candidate for Texas Governor Beto O'Rourke. That's at 9 and noon Eastern. I'm Pamela Brown. In for Jake Tapper, our coverage continues now. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Now streaming exclusively on Max, a new CNN flash talk about the album that has Nashville talking, Call Me Country, Beyonce and Nashville's Renaissance. Watch it at max.com slash callmecountry. Max subscription required.